Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Vaccines, AI, and the seeds of a green recovery is a new age of techno-optimism dawning? And could a new wave of innovation be the rich world's answer to decades of slowing growth? Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor of The Economist. Also on today's show, we wind back to the age of magnetic tape to find the future of data storage. It's cheaper to manufacture tape. Tape lasts longer than a hard disk. They require less maintenance and you get less heat emitted by an unspooling tape. And we meet a chemist investigating the use of traditional herbal remedies to treat neglected tropical diseases. There's a need for new medications for these diseases. They plague about 2 billion people and therefore deserve more attention. But first, the arrival of COVID-19 vaccines in such a short time is a reminder of how transformative science can be. Without the widespread adoption of this technology, it will be difficult to emerge from the pandemic. And the longer the pandemic goes on, the worse its economic consequences will be. In Western countries, COVID-19 has come after years of economic stagnation. To counter this, some political figures are backing more spending on research and development in the hope that innovation will boost economic growth. The theory goes that you want to try and boost all those things and governments should boost all those things. And if you're able to do that successfully, then you will end up raising long-term economic growth rates. Callum Williams is senior economics writer at The Economist. Western governments are also concerned by the very impressive technological and economic rise of China, which has in recent years spent a lot of money on R&D. And so they think, well, if China can do it and if China is becoming more powerful, then we need to do that too. Well, hang on a sec, because most people would look at what's happened in the last 20 years and they wouldn't look at their sort of underlying GDP figures. They'd say there's a lot of technology in our lives that we didn't have before. Is that not helping then economically? One answer to that is that the fundamental problem is that for one reason or another, the economic statistics can't capture the economic impact of technological innovations in the way that they used to. The research on that suggests that it might be a bit of a problem, but I don't think it sort of seals the argument and says that there's no problem. What you often hear instead is that there is something about the technological innovations you get today that don't raise living standards and raise incomes in the same way they used to. Maybe the best way of thinking about it is examples. The idea might be, for instance, that moving from an internal combustion engine to an electric vehicle is a big step forward, but moving from a horse to a car, which happened a century ago or so, is just a different step forward. So the idea fundamentally is that the kind of innovations we're seeing are just not as impressive as they used to be. 
Okay, I suppose a more cynical view would say that the advances that we've had in the last 10 years with things like smartphones and social media are, in fact, amazingly effective ways to waste time yes. um, rather than, well, as well as possibly meaning that your boss can email you around the clock. Okay, so what's the evidence that increasing spending on, on R&D can turn around this long-term downwards trend in growth? So a lot of it is anecdotal. Economists are very fond of pointing to the 1950s and 60s in in the US, which was both a time of rapid economic growth and productivity growth, and people could see living standards improving almost month to month. And it was also a time when the federal government in the US spent a lot of money on R&D. So some people say those two things are causally related. But others now today will look at a country like China, which has massively increased its R&D spending over the past kind of 20 years or so, and has turned from what is, in a sense, a research and technological backwater into a leader in many technologies. And and obviously, the country has got a lot richer at the same time. So when you look at the more formal evidence on this, it gets a lot more difficult. Now, in the print edition this week, we have a leader that talks about how there's this sort of new mood of optimism towards technology after a couple of decades of pessimism. So what's changed? Well, I think what's changed is really the pandemic. And I think the pandemic has forced both households and businesses to try and be more innovative. For instance, you've seen a lot of technological innovation in the past few months in technologies which allow people to work from home more effectively. So, you know, not just to use Zoom or Slack or whatever, but much more sophisticated virtual office technology and all that kind of stuff. And companies have done the same thing. So to use a sort of slightly banal example, if you walk around, you will notice that a lot more restaurants now have got kind of technological ways of delivering food and drink and all that kind of stuff. And this is something that they've kind of been spurred to do by the pandemic. And it's also tied up with the vaccines. I think the speed with which vaccines have been developed and distributed has reminded people of what humans can achieve when they put their mind to it. So it's also a cultural thing as well, I would say. And there's also optimism about more general purpose technologies, such as artificial intelligence and robotics. And the idea being that they wouldn't just be interesting and cool lab creations or things that you would see at tech shows, but actually used by actual companies and actual people. Okay, so if governments are investing more in innovation, where's their money going? So a lot of these plans to do R&D are plans at the moment. So for instance, Biden is talking about creating successor organisations to DARPA, which is that really famous agency of the US Department of Defence that did a lot of work into sort of military technologies and that kind of thing. It invented the internet most famously. Yeah. (laughs) So that's kind of one plan. There's also, and you do see a bit more evidence of this actually having taken place about boosting the budgets of organisations that give out research grants to people. Because one of the concerns, and this actually has been shown in the evidence, I think quite convincingly, is that what an era of tighter research budgets in the 1990s and 2000s led research organisations to do was to be more conservative in the way they give out grants. And, you know, they were less tolerant of the kind of wacky ideas that would probably fail, but might lead to these amazing breakthroughs. And the idea really is that by increasing research budgets, you kind of give people a bit more slack and allow them to take more risks. And where does the private sector fit into this? Because as with Bell Labs in the 50s, don't we have the tech giants doing all sorts of research into cutting edge, blue sky craziness like quantum computing now? Does that not correspond to the sorts of things that we saw in the 1950s? To an extent, you're absolutely right to say that there are a number of companies that are spending really enormous sums on R&D, Amazon, Alphabet are just two two examples. What the evidence suggests, and I think the evidence on this from the economics literature is, is pretty robust, is that aside from that small number of giants, corporate science has withered 
in quite a noticeable way compared with where it was in the 60s and 70s. One way of thinking about it is that corporations now do a lot more D and a lot less R. So it's a lot of tweaking of existing products and services rather than the kind of breakthrough basic research that can lead to really serious technological advancements. What's kind of happened is that back in the 50s and 60s, as you rightly say, companies like Bell Labs and IBM and DuPont and all those kind of companies, they were producing work that was being cited in the leading scientific journals at a higher rate than research being produced by universities. It was kind of amazing. And if you look at, you know, who's won Nobel Prizes, a lot of people from IBM have won Nobel Prizes. That hasn't really been the case for 30 to 40 years. Universities have really taken over. And there's this kind of division of labor, in effect, between universities that do the research and sometimes small companies that are kind of innovative. And then the large companies do the development and either license research from universities or take over small companies to take their intellectual property. And the idea is that that is a somewhat less efficient way of creating technologies which noticeably change the world and and raise people's incomes. Okay, so you've got money being spent by the private sector, you've got more money coming on stream from governments. What can governments do to actually help translate new innovations into things that affect the economy and and improve growth and so on? Well, some people would say there isn't that much they can do. There's this kind of weird paradox in a lot of the discussion about this, where economists agree that governments are very foolish in not spending vastly more on R&D. But governments, at least until now, haven't sort of met the challenge to the extent demanded by economists. And I think that's partly because I think governments are often sceptical about really how much difference they can make. And that's partly rooted in the kind of indeterminacy over whether R&D really does affect economic growth all that much. That said, I think if governments are looking to boost innovation and looking to boost technology and that kind of thing, I think there's a number of avenues they can take. One, which I mentioned earlier, was this question of research grants. I think changing the kind of norms and institutions in the scientific process would be great. And I think there's a lot of people you could talk to who would say that we need more moonshot approaches to giving people research grants. I think another idea which is more kind of run of the mill is allowing higher immigration. That's been shown very convincingly in a lot of the literature to increase innovation. And I think also just more funding for universities as well. But I think the idea that we can just go back to an environment that we had in the 1950s and 60s, where governments and companies cooperated perfectly to produce world-changing invention after world-changing invention seems slightly overly ambitious to me. Okay, so how will we know whether all of this is working in a few years' time? Where, if this is effective, where would it show up? Would it be in GDP figures? Would it be in productivity figures? You would hope so. That is ultimately what you're trying to do. This is a task that really will never end. You always want to increase your productivity figures and you always want to increase your your GDP figures. So there's no point at which anyone will be able to say we have succeeded. There's an interesting historical example here, which is that in the 1960s in the UK, the UK government was spending huge amounts on R&D compared to what it does today as a share of GDP. Yet the 60s was a time when the UK faced multiple economic crises and, and was growing fairly slowly. So it just goes to show that however ambitious a government is on R&D, you can never guarantee it's going to do what you want it to do for the economy. Callum Williams, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Tom. For more on the economics of R&D, make sure you subscribe to The Economist and read Callum's briefing. You can get a special introductory rate by going to economist.com slash podcast offer. And that link is in the show notes, too. Also in this week's issue, we explore the expulsion of Donald Trump from social media platforms. 
The Economist's business affairs editor, Patrick Fowles, told The Intelligence, our daily podcast, about the implications of this move. I think the problem is who is making the decisions? And it is ultimately several people running these very big tech companies and the idea that they personally get to decide the public sphere in the US is very dangerous. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, are you old enough to remember playing your favorite music from a cassette or having to rewind a VHS cartridge to take it back to the movie rental store? For a large part of the 20th century, magnetic tape powered our entertainment systems, and it was also used in the field of computing to store data. Like its use for audio and video, you might think that the use of magnetic tape to store computer data has been left behind. Your laptop has a hard drive after all, and you probably use flash drives to move things around. But tech companies in fact still rely on the whirring and spooling of tape systems to back up your data. Gilad Amit is the Economist science and technology correspondent. Gilad, why are companies still using magnetic tape? Isn't it a really old technology? It is, but it still works. And it's really remarkably cheap. When it comes to storing large amounts of data that you don't need to look at very often, it gives you by far the best value for money. It's also very secure because the fact that it's so cumbersome that you need to load reels into a reader means that they're very hard to access remotely, to hack into or to delete in large quantities. So the very awkwardness of the technology makes them more secure. The problems that we all remember from VHS cassettes are still there, though, like the fact that you need to rewind or fast forward to get at a particular piece of information. So if you wanted to access data all the time, you wouldn't use it. But if you have large volumes of information that you only need to access infrequently, cold data storage, as it's called, then tape is an ideal solution. And even companies like Google and Microsoft, which are very cagey about revealing their storage solutions, have been known to use tape in their data centers. One of the only ways that we know that Google makes use of magnetic tape is because back in 2011, when customer data was deleted, they had to resort to their tape backup storage to retrieve that information. Okay, now we should probably step back a bit because both hard disks and magnetic tape are using basically the same idea, which is storing information using magnetism on a flat surface. But just walk us through how that works in practice. So that's absolutely right. They're both the same technology and magnetic tapes sort of emerged and benefited from advances made in hard disk development. You have a flat surface, whether it's a strip of tape or a circular spinning platter, as in hard disks, and the surface is coated with very small magnetic particles. These particles are then exposed to a magnetic field, which 
can encode different magnetic orientations in these particles, or so some point up, some point down, and so on. And these can correspond to the binary bits required to store information, and then they are frozen in position. And then subsequently, that same magnetic surface can be passed under a similar device which reads the magnetic field and converts the magnetic fields back into information. So in one case, you have kilometers of magnetic tape wound up in a cartridge that fits in the palm of your hand. In the other, you have this circular spinning platter which runs underneath what's called a reed head. Now, I think people are probably familiar with seeing pictures of like old computers where they've got tape decks kind of running in the background. You can see things going round and round sort of in the 50s and the 60s. How different is modern tape technology? Is it basically the same? So it's the same principle, certainly. That hasn't changed. But the technology is, as you'd expect, significantly better. The size of the magnetic particles on the surface of the tape keep shrinking. The width of the tape shrinks. The speed with which the tape can be rolled increases. The accuracy with which tape can be unspooled also increases. And the um, accuracy with which we can control the magnetic fields required to read and write the information also increases. So that's meant that for more or less the past 30 years, the storage density of magnetic tape has increased consistently at about 34% a year. And that's one of the few remaining consistent areas of growth in cutting-edge technology and also one that's unmatched by any other storage solution. So hard disks and flash drives both struggle to meet the same rate of growth. The company that's really been pushing the envelope in recent years in this area is IBM. The units of measurement that are used in the data storage industry are unfortunately the archaic gigabits per square inch rather than square centimeter. In 2015, the team at IBM broke 100 gigabits per square inch, and then two years later, they managed to achieve 200. Last month in December 2020, they revealed a design that was capable of breaking 300 gigabits per square inch, which means that you could hold a cassette of tape in your hand capable of storing 580 terabytes of data, which is equivalent to nearly 800,000 CDs stacked in one single unstable tower nearly a kilometer high. Now, that sort of density won't make it to the market for probably another decade, but that will allow the rate of growth of magnetic tape density to increase at the same consistent rate, likely to 2030 and beyond. Okay, so the state of the art then is around 300 gigabits per square inch on magnetic tape. What is it on a hard disk platter then? So hard disks can very comfortably break 1,000 gigabits per square inch. So they can do three to four times the cutting edge magnetic tape density. The trouble is, at those densities, you're approaching the physical limits of what the magnetic fields are capable of. And at the same time, you also have certain other advantages. It's cheaper to manufacture tape. Tape lasts longer than a hard disk. They require less maintenance. And you get less heat emitted by an unspooling tape than a room full of spinning platters. So there are other reasons that magnetic tapes are preferred. So it's horses for courses, in effect, then. And the other entrant in this race is flash storage. So what's the sort of boundary between flash storage and hard disks on the one hand and hard disks and tape on the other? And how are those boundaries moving? So flash 
storage, also called solid state storage, is used in many computers. It's what's used in SD cards, in mobile phones and cameras and, and in USB sticks. And there's no question that flash storage beats tape storage and hard disk storage on practically every parameter. You can store more data on a cartridge of the same size. It's faster and easier to read and write. And there aren't any of those wearisome mechanical components. Nothing unspools, nothing spins. It's all solid state. The one major drawback is that it's much more expensive. The estimates are that flash drives are 10 times more expensive per byte per year of storage than hard disks and nearly 50 times more expensive than tape. What about beyond these media we've talked about? What other sorts of technologies are people looking at for long-term data storage? The most excited that people get is when they talk about DNA storage and the possibility of encoding information in DNA, both for its density and for the longevity of the data. But this technology is really at the very early stage and we'll be hearing more about it, no doubt. Okay, so maybe strands of DNA in the future, but for the time being, it's spools of tape, at least for some things. Gilad, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Tom. And finally, what do you call traditional medicine that works? Medicine. It's an old joke, but it contains a potent truth. In 2015, for example, the Nobel Prize in Medicine went to Tu Yuyu, a Chinese chemist, for isolating the active constituent of sweet wormwood, which is traditionally used as a cure for malaria. Her discovery of artemisinin has saved millions of lives. Many herbal remedies have similar potential, but not every folk cure is so closely scrutinised, and nor is every condition. So the neglected tropical diseases, called NTDs for short, are a group of 20 diseases. Dorcas Asay Safo is Associate Professor of Chemistry at the University of Ghana, based in Legon. They plague a group of people that are described as the world's poorest. And the development of new drugs is woefully underfunded for these set of diseases. If you take malaria... Malaria kills very quickly, so of course there's much attention. The NTDs do not kill immediately. It's a long-term process. But they also result in physical disabilities that result in limited productivity. Considering the fact that they plague about 2 billion people, that's a third of the world's population, they pose a huge socio-economic burden and therefore deserve more attention. So what gave you the idea of investigating the potential of herbal medicine to treat these diseases? So obviously there's a need for new medications for these diseases because of the low investment. Now traditional medicines are popular in this part of the world and they are traditional medicines that are used for these neglected diseases but they have not received the requisite research to promote and develop them. So the basis for the research was to conduct some scientific investigation on the traditional medicines that are used as a means of substantiating the efficacy claims by the practitioners. So how did you go about doing this? Where did you start and where did you focus your investigation? We decided to contact 
the herbal medicine practitioners, those who prepare the medications for these diseases. And we collected available herbal medicines for some local neglected tropical diseases, the endemic ones. And the number we came up with was 15. So the idea was now to prepare extracts from these and expose them to the parasites that cause the diseases as a means of evaluating their efficacy. And what did you find? What fraction of the traditional medicines worked? Almost all of them exhibited some level of efficacy. But it was also interesting to find out that whilst some of them were positive against their target diseases, so for example, a particular local remedy used for schistosomiasis, so that is Belhazia. Whilst in some cases we identified or we observed that they were not active against the target disease being schistosomiasis, there was activity against the other NTDs that were also looked at. So generally, there was activity, but most of the activity resided with trypanosomiasis, that is sleeping sickness, which was not a target disease for these traditional medicines. That is in the collection. None of, of the remedies was collected specifically for trypanosomiasis, but their highest activity was found against the trypanosomes. So first, we tested the crude extracts to have an idea of activity and then moved on to bioacid-guided fractionation. We eventually isolated an oil that turned out to be more potent, about 30% more active than the standard drug that is used against animal trypanosomiasis. Okay, so in each case, you weren't just testing these remedies against the diseases that they were supposed to be used for. You tested them against everything and you discovered they were most effective against this disease that, in fact, none of them were being used to treat. Exactly. What were the plants that were used in that particular remedy? This was a combination of aloe vera and dandelion, which is Taraxacum officinale. That, that is 1.3 times more active than the standard drug. Right. So what's the next step? I mean, obviously, that's a very impressive result. And uh, you found something that's more effective than the existing standard drug. What does that mean you're going to do now? Do you take this to a drug company? I mean, how do you take advantage of this discovery? So the, the overarching goal of the project actually was to do the basic science to identify some potential drug candidates and hopefully sell the information to pharmaceutical companies for further development. This is so far lab test or in vitro testing. We need to do in vivo testing and further studies. But because these traditional medicines are popular and widely used, we also want to promote the standardization of the herbal medicines, not so much as to isolating an active ingredient for drug development, but in addition to that, the isolation, being able to come up with a traditional medicine that we can confidently say, based on scientific investigation, that this is efficacious, safe, and it's of high quality for a particular neglected tropical disease. So we hope that pharma will pick this one up for further development. But because of the wide use, for me, it's of a higher priority to carry out quality development or standardization of the herbal medicines. Brilliant. Dr. Osei Safo, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome, Tom.
Before we go, we said last week that 14 million people had been vaccinated against COVID-19 in Israel. Of course, we meant 1.4 million out of Israel's population of 9 million. And since then, even more people have been vaccinated. Apologies for that error. That's all for this episode of Babbage. We'd love to know what you think. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Tom Standage, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.